This podcast is presented to you by a new series, The Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. You know, when I, when I think of civil liberties, so many things uh, that come to mind seem so polarized right now, whether it be right to life or abortion or LGBTQ equality or shifting systemic racist ideologies or bias towards Muslim Americans. Um, how in the world do we create limits for religious liberties, especially when many of these issues are so deeply tied to religious people's worldviews and values? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, the Honorable Charles Qual, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity Programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.ed. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Dr. Thomas C. Berg. He is a professor of law and public policy at the University of St. Thomas School of Law. Berg has written several books, including The State of Religion in a Nutshell, Patents of Life, and a new book that will be the focus of our conversation today. He also contributes to the SCOTUS blog, Christianity Today, and Mirror of Justice. Tom, thank you for joining the conversation. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, I guess the most pressing question to a kid from Chicago, and we're recording this mid-October, Cubs or Sox? Oh, Cubs. Um, although, you know, when the White Sox were good on those few occasions when they were good, I <laughs> followed them. But uh, Cubs, you know, I mean, you couldn't be a Cubs fan and only follow them when they were good. So, <laughs> that's, that's um, yeah. I had a chance. I've been to Chicago many times. Uh, and this last year, I was traveling for actually for work and had the opportunity to finally go to Wrigley Field. And there's just something incredible about the experience there. 
Um, I highly recommend it for any baseball purists out there who have never been to that park. So. It is. It is amazing. It's beautiful. Although I have to say my most meaningful baseball experience in Chicago was at Old Comiskey Park for Disco Demolition Night. If you have ever <laughs> heard of that, that was the night when the disc jockey on the kind of the kind of one of the early shock jocks in Chicago named Steve Dahl uh, blew up a bunch of disco records in the summer of 1979 before a game. And uh, like all these people who came out for this just sort of ran onto the field and started tearing up the turf. And it was a it was a mess. I was a youth group leader taking a bunch of high school kids to the game, oh, which wow. was an, an ill-considered choice in retrospect. <laughs> um, that's incredible. But, so that my yeah my my most amazing experience is at Old Comiskey. So you know how does a kid from from Chicago end up becoming so fascinated with constitutional law and intellectual property and uh, free speech issues? Well, I was always interested in in con kind of constitutional questions, political political science, the the relationship between uh, between uh, Christian faith and policy and law. So I pretty much um, always thought I would um, go to law school. I had a brief detour thinking about studying Russia and the Soviet Union when I was a, a graduate student. I came back to law school and um, ended up get, just getting very interested in the, the, the legal questions surrounding religion and the state, which is a complicated, challenging area. The history is so so rich. Um, there's so many lessons to draw from it. Although you always have to uh, be, 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 you know, mindful of how you apply the lessons to a new situation. So, you know, a lot of the book is about that, trying to take the lessons of the, the history of religious liberty, or the sources of religious liberty in America, the the, the wars of the Reformation in Europe. Uh, and how Americans responded to that history, and then how that might have relevance for us today. So that's, you know, that's really where my fascination begins. Well, and right before we jump in the book, just to give people a scope of, of not only being kind of a, a scholar around these things, but you've written over 70 briefs to, you know, the, the Supreme Court. I, I, I don't keep up with like the number of briefs, but that seems like a lot. Well, when you when you do something for a long enough period of time, the numbers add up. Um, so, uh, yeah, I um, in the last ten years or so, I, I mean, I've done this for done briefs, uh, Amicus Friend of the Court briefs for for thirty years now. But in the last ten years or so, I've decided to add to my teaching schedule a small uh, legal clinic where I have students. Uh, work on these briefs, writing the first drafts, then we edit them uh, together and and file them. And it's a really good writing experience for my for my law students as well. Uh, and friend of the court briefs, uh, which is mostly what I do, are you know you're not representing an actual party to the case. You're representing someone else who has an interest. And of course, in the in the Supreme Court, because what they do is what they say is so important to everyone. Uh, a lot of groups file briefs, but one thing about filing a brief as a friend of the court or an amicus curiae is that you can really concentrate on one aspect of the case and try to frame your arguments in a way that you hope will will move the court. Uh, and I think the, that the way we argue about religious freedom is extremely important um, in reducing the polarization that surrounds this uh, issue. So I filed briefs, for example, trying to make these parallels that I'll, maybe we can talk about between sympathizing with same-sex couples and understanding the importance of their rights to marry and their rights against discrimination, and also sympathizing with the religious objector who uh, feels that they can't be involved directly in in a marriage uh, ceremony, and to get those across to the court and, and uh, the parallels between those two, and the idea that maybe we can manage to develop some sympathy for both sides in these conflicts. And friend of the court briefs are a way to say those things that maybe the the parties to the case don't have an interest in saying or 
or or you don't have room to say or or whatever. So it's a great great vehicle. We can't go any further without talking about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. So let's jump right there. New book, uh, Religious Liberty in a Polarized Age. This book examines a critical question as to if our religious liberty can help cure our political division. You wrote, for religious freedom disputes to fuel polarization is sad and it's incongruous religious freedom is meant to not aggravate but rather to calm conflict among deeply held views like other civil liberties it sets ground rules that allows people of differing characteristics to coexist we'll get into the kind of the meat of the book here in just a second but you know, take us into insight into kind of what motivated you and inspired you to write this book for for this current moment we're in. I've been working on religious liberty issues, as I said, for about 30 years and um, have seen in the last, I would say, dozen years, probably, that the issues, of course, have always been uh, uh complicated and, and and disputed for sure um but they enter they've entered a new phase in the last dozen years or so in which uh religious liberty disputes whether it's on the one side that over over gay rights and the religious objectors the wedding vendors the the foster care or adoption catholic agencies or whatever uh, and then on the other hand uh Muslim freedom, building building mosques, uh, President Trump banning travel from Muslim-dominated nations. All of those issues have moved so much to the forefront of our general uh, pattern of polarization uh, and kind of anger and uh, we all we all know kind of what's happened in the last few years. But religious liberty disputes have been a major part of that. Uh, and I just thought that it was important to um, think about religious liberty in that context. And as I began to think about that, it just struck me that we have a kind of softer version going on right now in America of the cycle of fear and kind of um, reprisal that was going on in Europe in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, and that gave rise to the uh, the need for religious liberty in, in the first place. And so the question is, can religious liberty, instead of being a source of polarization, be a means of not eliminating it, but at least calming it uh, a bit and, and reducing polarization? And so I try to describe that mechanism and what it would take for religious liberty uh, religious liberty to be a, a source of calm, which is what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to protect people and thereby calm the fear, division, and anger that comes when people feel that they're under threat. Uh, and so that's, that's where the, the book comes from. Religious freedom can be a hotly contested term where people are are jockeying for interpretation of what it means. You know, take, for example, among Baptists um, who have deeply held this value for hundreds of years. Our particular Baptist tradition partners with the Baptist Joint Committee of Religious Freedom. It's part of our key identity, uh, except I've met some Baptists that believe religious liberty pertains to their rights as Christians and, and, and it means to main, mainly reinforce their view that America is a Christian nation. So 
to help us kind of start the conversation around this, what do you mean by religious freedom or liberty, which which will, you know, those two terms we'll use interchangeably in our conversation? Sure. I mean by religious freedom, the ability of, um, of all people to uh, live, uh, at least presumptively, live in accordance with their deepest beliefs about uh, God, the, the creation of the world, the, the ultimate meaning of life, uh, the, you know, the fundamental nature of, of, of reality, and so on. However, we define um, religion as this kind of comprehensive um, belief system. And so it's the ability of all people to live consistently with those beliefs. So take a, take, take a couple of things out of that definition. First of all, we're talking about not just believing, but living consistently with those beliefs. So it's the free exercise of the right of religion, the right to act on your beliefs and live in accordance with them, not just the right to believe something in your head. Baptists have always uh, emphasized that uh right the right to to live according to your beliefs um but it's also right for everyone and as you say um if uh, today and and at other times people have used liberty as a means simply of arguing for liberty for that for me and not for thee uh that happened in the reformation years in europe when each side, the Protestants and the Catholics and the different Protestant groups asserted con the, their rights of conscience, but of course denied the rights of conscience to the other side as soon as, soon as they got power. The Puritans escaped England to try to follow their conscience and then denied conscience rights to Quakers and, and, and dissenters. And, and today, if, if Religious liberty is too often argued as a right for Christians, but not for Muslims. That's not religious liberty. That's just a way of advancing your own views, uh, and liberty becomes sort of a, a means to that. That's not truly religious liberty. And the last thing, quickly, uh, we can talk about this more, is that I say it's a presumptive right. Of course, there are limits on religious freedom. We have to define those, and, and a good part of the book is about that. Um, but yes, it has to be for everyone, presumptively, or else it's not really religious liberty. It's just a means of advancing my views then. Yeah, I really do want to come back to that latter part towards the end of our conversation. Um, throughout the pandemic, um, I pastored a local church. Overwhelmingly, 99.9% .9 of the congregation was on board with the stay-at-home order, the mask mandates, etc. However, I did have one member who believed it was our duty to stand against the governor of the state, defining all, defying all orders as an act of, quote, religious liberty. What are some of the common ways you see this philosophy misunderstood? So, uh, um, the, the, you know, the, the most important way is in thinking solely about the liberty of the views that matter to me. Um, we, we, we've seen that too often, I think, with, uh, with evangelical Christians, um, obviously not, not everyone, but just far too often, um, uh, denying rights to Muslims. Uh, and, uh, again, these controversies over, over building mosques, where the, the groups that are, uh, go, uh, that are protesting and saying this is Islam trying to take over are almost always led by some local evangelical preacher. Uh, and, um, you know, that's that's not religious liberty to claim that this other uh, faith, uh, a, a historic faith, just doesn't enjoy uh, rights at all. Now, of course, as with other faiths, uh, Islamic Practices that impinge on the rights of others in a fundamental way, are, of course, can be limited, just like Christian practices. But you can't ha have the uh, you, you you can't argue that Christians get religious freedom and Muslims don't. So there's a there's a first um, misunderstanding, and I I talk of various ways in the book about how we need to see our rights as 
standing or falling together. The very same principles that say Pat Robertson pulls out to, to say that Muslims need to be denied freedom um, are turned right back on evangelical Christians. Uh, Pat, Pat Robertson says, Muslim, you know, Islam is not really a religion, it's a political movement. Well, how often do you read uh, in, say, progressive newspapers or progressive magazines or whatever, that the, that the, the conservative Christians are not really sincere? They're just, they've got a bigoted view and they're making up a religious um, view to, to, you know, to try to, to sanction that. So the same thing is turned back on conservative evangelicals. So it, even in pragmatic terms, it's a, a, a very bad idea for them to oppose the rights of Muslims. That's one mistake. The other mistake, I think, and uh, that conservative Christians make, and I appreciate the Baptist Joint Committee's uh, witness on this and their position, uh, is free exercise of religion should be strong, but that does not give me the right to use the government to practice faith. So corporate prayers in the public schools or corporate prayers, you know, at at um, uh, at, the, at the graduation or the uh, the use of religious symbols as by the government as statements of who we are as a Christian people. It's the free exercise of religion by voluntary individuals forming together in groups. Uh, but for too many Christians, that means. Uh, that includes the right to to use the vehicle of government to do it, and that um, I think is uh, another contributor to our to our polarization and uh, not you know not a not a good understanding of religious freedom. Polarization is quite possibly the best word to describe our era of socio-political discourse. Uh, even among Republicans, they are polarized. You know, note to listeners: we are recording this the week after. Kevin McCarthy was ousted by members of his own party as the Speaker of the House, the first time this has been done in congressional history. In the book, you point to a key social term for all of this, social sorting. Walk us through what, what that means and its implication for our polarization. Yeah, um, there's there's so much good political science and social science research on what's been happening with our dynamics. Uh, in the last few years, I think a, a, a quick way of of describing it is that what 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 were political divisions uh, at one point have sort of morphed into larger uh, uh, social slash cultural slash political divisions with these all of these things tending to line up for a large number of people. It starts off with the way our political parties changed their patterns. You know, at one time there were conservative Democrats, the South, right? They had conservative Democrats, and then there were Democrats in the northern cities and so on. So the Democratic Party was kind of a coalition of political um, political views. And Republicans similarly, they're kind of somewhat moderate Republicans in the in the Midwest and the Northeast, and then more uh, conservative ones in the in the Sun Belt and so on. And then over time, uh, the parties tended to sort so that the conservatives all moved into the Republican Party and the liberals, progressives all moved into the, the Democratic Party. And that, you know, maybe that maybe was had some good features in that it led each party to be more a kind of a more coherent uh present a more coherent program of policy, conservative versus liberal alternatives. But over time, what it did was morph into uh, losing contact with people on the other side, uh, so that you not only are different from them in your politics, but you sort in your churches, you sort into liberal churches and conservative churches, you sort into liberal towns and conservative towns you sort into you know there's a there's a book uh, that summarizes all of this with the title prius or pickup and uh that your so your choice of cars your choice of restaurants um uh is it you know is it whole foods uh grocery or 
um, or, uh, or or crackle barrels, a cracker barrel, right? All the, these different kind of cultural markers that have come to divide people in so many other ways, so that we don't have as much contact with people on the other side, and therefore we lose sympathy for people on the other side, and that gets the cycle going of distrust, um, fear, et cetera. If I agree with a person on some things, but disagree on others, I can you know, relate to that, uh, to that person. But if I agree, uh, disagree with somebody on absolutely everything, then they become more infuriating to me. Uh, they're just wrong on everything, and that is more likely to make them uh, appear to me as a danger to uh, to the nation and to uh, to me and my family. And so you get these very large numbers of people reporting that the other side is a danger to the nation, or they would much rather have their uh, child marry someone of a different religion, a different race, a different ethnicity, much more ready to, to embrace that than to marry someone of the other political party. Um, and there you have it, that's polarization, and then it cuts across all these other areas as well. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Kind of in my mind, going back to a study conducted by Pew Research Center in, in 2019, you know, this is before the 2020 election. This is before uh, January 6th. It revealed that 78% of Americans believe political division is on the rise. A majority of people, 55%, perceive significant dissimilarities or a lack of common ground. And 73% of one political party believes that their political rivals can't even agree on basic facts. And so Pew's findings indicate that America is experiencing this heightened partisan animosity. It's it's more intense. It's more personal than recent decades. Um, you you wrote uh, the causation may run both ways from parties to population and back. The sordid parties offer polarized options, but broader ideologies and social sorting also leads to engaged citizens to make polarized uh, policy demands. The parties respond with more polarized options, pushing voters to polarized choices. The feedback loop continues. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. Yeah, there's there's been for years a sort of uh, debate among political scientists about whether polarization, kind of the real sharp conflict, is just between the ideological uh, folks, the folks who who you know care the most about politics, the the um, the political class, and so on, um, or does it extend more broadly? to a large part of the population. And, you know, I, I, I'm no expert on, um, on the social science and the political science. I kind of review the, the various uh, 
positions on that in the book. But I think it's probably fair to say in the last decade that however many people are in this polarized state, it's a greater number than used to be. Um, it's not just the political class. It's not just the operatives or the, you know, the people who appear on cable news shows or whatever to, to, to spout their views. They've, they've reached a larger number of Americans and activated a larger number of Americans uh, through, and social media has played a role in this, um, and other kind of feedback feedback loops. Um, so, uh, and, and, and I, I think it is important to also always talk about how these dynamics uh, kind of um, accentuate each other. And you get in a cycle in which, um, as I said in the book, um, the parties offer um, polarized options. They don't agree uh, at, at all. Um, and, and again, you can blame one party more than another for this. I, I talk a little bit about, about that in the book. Um, we can talk about that, Andy, if you, if you want. Um, but it, it does work. It does work both ways, at least to an extent. And then, you know, people respond to that, but people are also affecting the politicians. Um, you know, a, a society is a is a complicated thing. And one, once you get on a on a bad cycle, it tends to reproduce itself, just like the cycle of fear and of the other side leads to I need to restrict the other side before they restrict me. We need to get the conservative Christians because they're going to go after LGBTQ people, or we need to stop the, the 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 trans movement, and we and we need to shut that down completely because they're coming for us, and they'll never stop. Um, that those sorts of cycles just re reproduce themselves. Yeah, a friend of the podcast, uh, David Gushy, has the term he uses for all this is authoritarian reactionary Christians. Um, let, let's dive into uh, deeper into the competing views of, of religious liberty. You know, what makes some Christians' perspective of religious liberty so difficult is there's an ardent view around the truth of Christ over any other religion and the desire for Christianity to prevail in Western civilization and by extension, the rest of the world. Um, you know, it's no wonder that such views of one's faith and its implications for the greater world around it, you know, why we have such ardent views around other civil liberty issues, such as pro-life and pro-choice. Um, but how do you navigate creating a more generous view of those matters among a particular tribe of religiosity that kind of sees religious liberty in this way? Uh, well, you know, to, to begin with, there is, I think, we have to acknowledge that, that it, it, it is part of religion, at least potentially, and of any religion, to be asserting that this is fundamentally the right way. Right? This, is, this is the truth about the deepest points uh, of, of human existence, the world. Um, and, and, and religions can be more, more tolerant and more open to other insights or not, there, there are real differences there. But every religion in a, in a, in a way has, is, is saying something um, powerful that's in conflict with or in, in tension with at least some of the claims of other religions. So, you know, James Madison recognized this as the dynamic of religious conflict in Europe. He said, torrents of blood have been spilt in the old world uh, by, by what? But not just by the existence of religious disagreement and religious conflict and assertions of religious truth, because that will happen. People are going to disagree and they're going to disagree strongly. But what, what causes the torrents of blood to be spilled, he said, was the attempts of the secular arm, the government, 
to suppress those differences and and favor and impose one view over the other. And the cure then for that disease, because he'd used the image of a disease, was not then to, to, to try to um, pick one view as the correct one, but to let the debate go on in the private sector, in civil society. Religious liberty is the cure. You can't get rid of the conflict. You can't get rid of the deep, the deep differences. You can't, it's not a matter of telling, you know, conservative Christians that there's no difference between conservative Christian Christianity and Islam in terms of religious beliefs, or that it does, you know, it doesn't matter whether you believe that Jesus is is saves or not. That's it's not that. It's that we let those debates about religious truth happen among people in uh, you know, their voluntary organizations and in public debate, and the government stays out of it. So that's, I guess that's the first thing is conservative Christians have to recover the idea that it's not up to the government to enforce their faith. Russell Moore is a, you know, a really major voice speaking to conservative Southern Baptists on this. And he sometimes gets a hearing and sometimes doesn't, but right, we don't go to some government bureaucrat for our faith. That's a classic evangelical Christian theme that has gotten forgotten in recent decades by far too many people who who you know who do the the kind of christian nation move um that's a principled argument to to people that that it's that faith is is to be uh voluntary not uh, not imposed by government or pressured by government the more pragmatic move is look if you don't show sympathy for other views um people are not going to show sympathy to you. And so we need to, to recover the idea that we're all in this together and the principles that protect um, you in another case, in, in, in some case, will also uh, protect me. I think that's true for Muslims and conservative Christians, for example. Um, so we can talk more about that if you want. But yeah, and I think for the sake of equity in the conversation, if that's one side, of the polarized view of religious liberty, what would be the opposite side of the spectrum? Um, you, you, mean in, you mean what sort of mistakes are made on the other? I've been talking a lot about what what conservative Christians have got have gotten wrong or yeah, too yeah. That's what, I mean, I, I, yeah. I've been kind of pointing you that direction, and so I think yeah. for the sake of equity, I think it'd be important for us to kind of. Yeah, carve out what tend to be the the misgivings of the opposite side of that. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean we have we have seen some very um, negative and restrictive understandings of religious freedom come from the progressive side in uh, in recent years. The U.S. Civil Rights Commission a few years ago, leading up to the 2016 election, this is a civil rights commission with mostly democratic appointees, said that you know, the best understanding of religious freedom is one that doesn't protect any kind of discrimination by religious groups, doesn't protect any kind of discrimination. The best understanding of religious freedom, in fact, which will, will stop these conservatives from discriminating is that you have the right to believe whatever you want, but you don't have the right to act on it. Okay, but if we if we took that view seriously, um, what would it mean for all of our ability to to practice our faith, right? What would it mean for the for the ability of um, civil of, of civil rights protesters deeply motivated by faith? To get out into the street and uh, and 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 the parks and uh, call attention to the injustice of segregation by acting, right? Uh, not just believing, not just staying in the churches and 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 even just sort of preaching to the to the congregation, but getting out there and 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 speaking and acting out faith. 
the, the uh, pro progressives over the last 10 years have often articulated views of religious freedom that confine it to within the congregation. This is a bizarre thing for progressives to do because for progressive Christian faith, for other kinds of progressive faith, faith in action, faith serving others has been at the core of the understanding of what it means to, you know, to live as a follower of Christ. And yet you hear progressives um, arguing that, you know, there's no religious freedom right to to, to you know to to follow your tenets in the provision of social services in the provision of foster care in the provision of adoptions uh so you know i i think that the kind of the goal of limiting discriminatory effects on others has led progressives down the road of confining religious freedom in ways that to me just very ironically um, undercut the uh, the kind of progressive and liberal views of what faith is all about. Uh, I call it, you know, sort of sad and ironic. Now, yes, there have to be limits on uh, on the claim that I can discriminate against somebody in what I in in my social ser service work or our organization can discriminate. And those they're you know they're careful line drawing that has to go on, but. Too often, progressives have taken this, you know, in order to get to, to those limits, they've, they've made arguments that are much broader and um, undercut, I think, the progressive understanding of what, what faith really is. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. You know, when I, when I think of civil liberties, so many things uh, that come to mind seem so polarized right now, whether it be right to life or abortion or LGBTQ equality or shifting systemic racist ideologies or bias towards Muslim Americans. Um, how in the world do we create limits for religious liberties, especially when many of these issues are so deeply tied to religious people's worldviews and values? We, we, we have to understand that the same arguments that limit someone else's freedom um, might be used back on me. So again, let's pick start off with the trying to restrict the building of the mosque. Um, uh, the the assumption that there's something dangerous going on in that mosque that too many opponents have have made is again something that can be turned back on on conservative Christians. Uh, the, uh, you know, I, I, but, but, but that works in other, other contexts as well. So the argument that, uh, for example, same, same sex couples have the right to receive goods in the commercial marketplace. They have the right to, uh, to, um, to marriage. Uh, and so on, and that rests on, on rights rest on a set of points about the importance of marriage, relationships, uh, family to same-sex couples that are, I argue, in many ways similar to the kinds of arguments that religious conservatives make 
about their own right to object to participating in those uh, in, in say a same-sex wedding. Both of those, both groups are asserting a, a, a pervasive aspect of their identity that is governing their lives, that is a, a matter of, uh, of, of relationship that is forming their lives, whether it's a same-sex family or whether it's the religious believers living out the uh, the commands of God, the, the religious conservative believers living out the commands of God. So we've got to find ways to protect both of those significantly. I believe it's doable. Um, you, the devil is in the details here in particular, uh, particular contexts, but in the context of the anti-discrimination laws and um, say same-sex uh, couples and same-sex weddings, I argue that we should protect religious organizations pretty strongly uh, because, you know, the, so the foster care service or the or the adoption uh, service or the religious college that may have rules about student behavior, um, those organizations, they let people know that they are religious, people people can choose to go to those providers or, um, or not. And there are very often, almost always many other providers uh, that are happy to work with, with same-sex couples. Um, so I think we can protect those relig the, the religious organizations quite strongly. In the commercial sphere, we're talking about the wedding vendor, the, the, the cake designer, the website designer, those exemptions, I think there should be some protections for those, even for those folks, but those protections have to be narrower because as the Supreme Court said in one of these cases, it cannot, it, 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 it would not be acceptable to have a large number of providers saying no to couples as they, as they came in to, to, you know, to, to seek services. That would create a kind of second-class citizenship. I think if we define those exemptions narrowly to small businesses that have a personal involvement with providing the service, and again, where there are a lot of other providers, as there very often are, that we can we can protect those few providers without having that kind of badge of second class citizenship. Um, but you know, it 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 works. It has to work out in different ways in different uh, contexts, but we have to approach it with the goal of taking both rights seriously. There is a, a certain vernacular that will almost guarantee a win within many parts of the country. It's the the God talk. Um, I still chuckle at Donald Trump saying two Corinthians, but it was his attempt to play the game, right? Um, in the book, you argue that limiting government's own religious activity reinforces the case for limiting government's control over the voluntary religious activity of private individuals and groups. Help us understand why this is a matter of consistency and reciprocity. Yeah, uh, so we're talking, for example, about, you know, if 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 we're going to put up if a if a local county, let's say, is going to put up a Ten Commandments display in the courthouse. Uh, in the county courthouse, and um, the Supreme Court in the past has put some limits on that. It looks like the the new conservative court is relaxing those limits, and we don't have a case, a new case yet about the Ten Commandments. Um, but all signs are is that there's going to be more, a lot more room for the local majority to express religious views through the government, through official displays, as long as it's not directly coercing someone to participate in a religious exercise. So this difference between expressing that we are Christian or you know, expressing um, the religious values versus coercing someone. I think that even expressing the, uh, the official uh, religious position is a bad idea um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, 
the when 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 religious believers when Christians assert their free exercise right their personal right to exercise their faith even when a law cuts the other way they have to they have to be arguing two things there when they argue for religious freedom protection number one is they have to argue that religion is a particularly sensitive and important matter to the person to them to me as an individual and the government ought to tread very lightly in that area that i think is a historic premise of religious freedom but then you can't turn around and say well it doesn't really matter that much to the jewish objector or the atheist objector that there's a cross up there as a war memorial or that there's a you know a ten commandments display that says we are defined here by our you know our commitment to the the morals of you know the 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 jewish and christian bible uh it you know it matters to the atheist as well uh these if 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 it if these matters are so deep to christians they're also very deep to atheists they're also very deep to american jews and they're a deep to american muslims and so that kind of consistency if if religion is sensitive and the government should tread very lightly in it they should tread very lightly on those questions uh as well if you want that sympathy for your views you're going to have to give it in other contexts uh too um the you know people say well uh, say to the conservative christians uh, what what right do you have to call the courts in to call to to, to protect you from the majority the majority is against your discriminatory views um what what right do you have to call, to call the courts in to override the, the majority's disapproval of your conservative views and in order to answer that conservative christians are going to have to say you know these are principles that stand above the majority and they can't turn around and say well the majority gets whatever it wants in terms of putting up religious symbols in the public square that's simply sort of on the face of it inconsistent it's another kind of example of um of free you know freedom of religion for me but not not for thee so i defend a fair amount of what this conservative court has done on the free exercise side i'm a strong believer in free exercise but i don't think that they're going in the right direction as to the government's own official um religious acts they're allowing more and more of that and that i think is a bad development on a good day i'm very hopeful on an average day i'm very cynical when it comes to this the dissolving of this polarization um so let's let's end on a hopeful note you have written this extensive well-researched incredible call for religious liberty to help be a bomb to our polarization um cast a, a brief vision for us of why you think that can become a reality yeah i, I so i'm hopeful um about elements in the in the future of evangelical christianity i do see more acceptance of uh, lgbtq people among uh young evangelicals um i i see important elements of the evangelical christian sector being open to the to 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 this and again this is not like changing your theological views necessarily but it's changing your attitude towards uh can we live together do we all have the right to live together um fully in this society um i i, I do see 
changes on that um, in, 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 you know, among, among evangelical Christians. Um, I hope there will be, in response, there will be changes on the progressive uh, side uh, as well. Um, one, one piece of hope, uh, well, two pieces of hope. We have had models of legal um, changes that have protected both sides in this, um, on particularly this issue about LGBTQ rights and religious freedom. Eight years ago, the deep red state of Utah passed a statewide gay rights law uh, protecting um, against sexual orientation, discrimination in employment, in housing, and a couple of other important sectors. It passed in one of the reddest states, one of the most conservative states in the country, because it passed along with strong religious exemptions. The two sides came together, the Latter-day Saint Church supported it, and um, LGBTQ rights group in, in the main one in Utah supported it. And they got protections for both sides through non-discrimination laws with protections for religious organizations. A smaller version of that, uh, I don't want to say compromise, but that bipartisan sort of protection for both sides happened last December in Congress in what's called the Respect for Marriage Act. Congress passed a law re um, recognizing a statutory right to same-sex marriage uh, by statute. This wasn't the Supreme Court doing it, right? The Supreme Court declared that right a few years ago, but there's a there's been a worry that the conservative court would overturn the Obergefell decision. So this statute called the Respect for Marriage Act gives that right to marriage protection as a matter of statute. So if the court overturns its constitutional decision, the right will still be there. Um, specifically, it's a requirement that states recognize same-sex marriages contracted in other states. So it's a little bit more limited, but it's a still nevertheless an important kind of insurance policy for same-sex couples if this conservative court undoes the constitutional right. At the same time, the Respect for Marriage Act makes some important, includes some important provisions protecting the religious liberty of organizations religious organizations that object to same-sex marriage. It says that their rights should not be affected by this. Nothing in this diminishes their rights. And it says that their beliefs are entitled to respect. Uh, there's a statement by the, you know, the Congress of the United States at the same time that it recognizes same-sex marriage rights, that the objector's rights are entitled to respect as well. And without getting too far into the details of that, I think that that will be a strong basis for protecting objecting religious organizations at the same time as you protect marriage rights. Now that law, how, how, how did a conservative uh, Congress, uh, conservative Senate go, uh, or how did you get over a filibuster in the Senate that would, that would stop that law from passing? It passed because enough Republicans went along with it because there were religious liberty protections in it. So we have models showing us that it's possible to protect both sides. And in fact, the only way to protect one side is to protect the other simultaneously. Neither side is going to get an advantage by sort of suppressing the other side totally. You can't make LGBTQ people go away. You can't make religious conservatives go away. We have to live together in this country. We have to live together in our communities. And there are ways to do that. We've seen it happen. It's difficult, um, but it's doable. Our guest is Thomas C. Berg. The book is Religious Liberty in a Polarized Age. Tom, it's been wonderful to meet you. Thank you for challenging us to see that 
religious freedom can play a role in stopping cycles of suffering, fear, and resentment. Thank you. Great to be with you. Enjoyed it. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.